had a little trouble finding my way through this forest of microphones when I found <laughs> the pulpit. And I'm delighted to be here. And uh, we've enjoyed your fellowship with you very much. And I've been trying to follow the pastor's request during these conference days, starting with the foundation, which is grace, salvation by grace, uh, and then going beyond that to the body life. Who are we? What do we look like? What do we act like? And then finally, uh, to the final part of that triad, and that is obeying the king's command uh, and getting the word out that we have received and uh, making sure that our song that we sing, I Love to Tell the Story, is not hypocritical. Uh, rather, we do love to tell the story. And so we come to the final one of these messages on the church. And it is found, the message is found in Isaiah 54. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to be reading the first eight verses of Isaiah 54. And follow along with me in whatever translation you have, it will come out the same. Uh, and notice, and I'll make some comment about this, that chapter 54 comes after chapter 53, which is a description, a description of the depths of suffering that our Lord went through. And then also toward the end of that chapter, uh, we get a picture of the resurrection, that God is honoring the sacrifice that he made uh, and that God is making promises to him about a kingdom that shall never end and that will be universal. And then we come to Isaiah 54. And we read these words, Sing, O barren, you who have not born, break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not labored with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let them stretch out the curtains of your dwelling. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Do not fear. You will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame, for you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. For a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And may God, the Holy Spirit, who inspired the writing of this word, enable us to receive it with understanding and determination, and that we will follow the orders of our King, who suffered and died for us. 
So will you join me in the prayer that the Holy Spirit will speak through me and that you will receive it by the same Holy Spirit so that your hearts will be quickened and rededicated to the Lord Jesus. Join me in that prayer, if you will, please. Father, we thank you that we labor not in vain. We thank you that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that do build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman awakes, but in vain. And Lord, unless you speak through your servant today, this portion of this service will be held in vain. Come then, therefore, O God, and speak to your servant, and speaking through him, speak to your servants who are gathered here to hear your word. And we pray that by the power of this word that we may be renewed, that we may be quickened by the Holy Spirit, that he may take the word written and make it right, write it upon our hearts, and that we may receive it with full intention of obeying the word that you reveal to us today. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. I think that there is something to be said, of course, for the fact that in some time in the late Middle Ages and following that, uh, that the chapters and the books in the Bible were divided into chapters and verses because that's not the way it was written. And sometimes that obscures uh, the meaning of any particular sentence that God inscribes in his word because we have to read what he said before and what he said afterwards. I think one of the classic examples of that was one of my Armenian friends uh, asked me one time, how can you believe in predestination and be a Presbyterian when you read John 3.16? And I said, easy. I read John 3.15 before I read John 3.16, and then I read John 3.17. As a matter of fact, and we went on into a discussion, uh, there is uh, certainly the mandate uh, that we preach the gospel, but there is also the promise it comes from God, and God's purpose will be fulfilled. But it's so easy for us to get into the habit of just memorizing verses without considering the context. I think a classic example of that was where I grew up in the mountains of East Tennessee. Uh, there were preachers up there who believed if you studied beforehand, you were sinning against the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that you were stand in the pulpit and open the Bible and uh, then he would give you the message, whatever it might be. But this preacher was burdened because the women in his congregation seemed to be more concerned about style than they did uh, about godliness, uh, according to his opinion. Uh, and he was especially concerned when the women all went with the, 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 new, the latest fads about their hair, putting them up in a, a, a big bundle on top of their head, and he thought he ought to preach against that. But he went through the scriptures and couldn't find a single place where the Lord commanded the ladies to let their hair down until he came to that sermon that Christ preached uh, in, uh, on, on the second, his second coming. And he was reading along, and, and he saw where, where the Lord said, Let him who is on the housetop not come down. So he had his verse. 
And his verse was, top knot, come down. And taking that out of, totally out of context. But the division of the books of the Bible into chapters and verses does have its hazards. And we sometimes miss the power of the message when we simply isolate the verses and go and, and pay no attention to the context. But this uh, same system that has been a stumbling block to many may also become the power of God because when we focus on a particular word from God, uh, we will find that God directs us and teaches us and so if you really want to understand Isaiah 54, especially the verses that I read, and accept the challenge, then you have to see the connection with the verse, the chapter before, in which Isaiah, by the Holy Spirit, saw a vision of the suffering of the Savior. And he described that. In, in language that is so poignant, it's almost as if Isaiah was sitting at the foot of the cross, and by the Holy Spirit, indeed, he was. And his description of the suffering of Christ in Isaiah 53 is even more graphic than the descriptions given in the Gospels, who were the eyewitnesses of the things that he suffered on the cross. But Isaiah saw that through a vision of the Holy Spirit long before. And so he, he wrote those moving and descriptive words, but in the writing of the suffering of the Savior, if, when you come toward the end of 54, uh, of 53, you realize of what he had accomplished. And God had poured out his mercy, uh, and he, God had made the promise, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, he has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And then we come to these startling words, sing, O barren, you have not borne and break forth into singing. And the command here that we focus on this morning is simply this that you are to strengthen your stakes and lengthen your cords. You are to break out uh, and to receive the power of the sacrifice of Christ and put it to work. Enlarge the place of your tent. And so here we have this striking uh, a, a command that the uh, suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ lays a burden on the people who are saved to get the message out proclaim the good news of salvation. And so we have these words, enlarge the place of your tent, strengthen your stakes, and lengthen your cords. Here we have both the orders and the strategy for our battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the first words we, we, we see in these verses are enlarge the place of your tent. What does that mean? 
What does the king who suffered so much command us? How foolish it would be of us to ignore and disobey his spoken word. Enlarge the place of your tent. That means simply grow. The mandate of the church is to grow. It's amazing how simple the order is. And yet it's so easy for us to misunderstand it or simply to be content and disobey it. Some people think that it, it is unimportant for a church to grow. Uh, but God commands it. The church that is uninterested in growing will soon become ingrown and satisfied with itself. And it's a beautiful thing uh, to see the interaction in this congregation between the people, the, the handshakes, the hugs, the smiles, and all that goes with it, the genuine friendliness. But the danger of that would be that we would become so content with each other that we would ignore the many out there who are starving to death spiritually, who are isolated spiritually, have no friends to whom they could turn. When there is sickness, they wouldn't know what to do about it. They wouldn't know who to call on. So the church must grow itself by the word of God, and the doors of the church have to be as wide as the gospel itself. Whosoever will, let him come. The church that attempts to limit itself to one corner of a city, one little subdivision in suburbia, one little country community, one socioeconomic group, one race, or even one country dooms itself to failure in the eyes of the Lord and to dooms itself to disobeying the explicit commands of the king. So often we think, well, if we could just get more of that kind of people into our church, we'd have it made. But we don't need to be thinking that way. We need to be seeking people who need the church, not that who we need and to strengthen ourselves. And God forbid that any church should ever say or even imply who may or who may not come to this church to worship God. When I was first starting out in the Cumberland Mountains of Tennessee, the, the mission work that we were doing was supported by the, the downtown church on Signal Mountain, uh, and they supplied the, the funds necessary to carry on that ministry. But I was shocked one time when the chairman of the board of deacons put his arm around my shoulder and led me aside and said to me, son, do you realize how much it's costing this church per head to keep those people out there in church? I think you're wasting your time. They're simply not Presbyterian material. And I was shocked to the very depths of my soul to hear an officer in the church say of these people whom I had grown to love and to care for, they're not Presbyterian material. I considered seriously leaving the Presbyterian church at that point because they were lost sinners. They were dying and on their way to hell. And here comes this man telling me they're not Presbyterian material. Don't worry about them. You're wasting your time. And if that thinking ever creeps into your heart, get down on your knees and ask God to forgive you because that's the kind of people Jesus died for. 
and that we are members of the human race together. And we're fallen, we're desperate, we're in need of grace. I will never forget a turning point that came in one of the little country churches I was serving over in South Carolina several years ago. And when I went there, the, the church was languishing. Uh, I had just finished six years in, uh, teaching in seminary uh, and pastoring large churches and I was asked to come and fill in at this little church and then God in his mercy uh, laid upon their hearts for them to call me uh, and I accepted the call because I didn't know why but I knew God was calling me there. Uh, and there were maybe 25 or 30 people in church on Sunday morning. There was sort of a gloom and a pall over uh, that little congregation. But then we had a visitor, thanks to one of our elders, and that visitor was a man named Harry Dent. Some of you may have heard that name. He was in the Nixon White House, and he realized what was going on, and he had come to salvation, uh, and he resigned from the... Uh, the uh, White House staff before uh, the, uh, the horror of Watergate broke over the country. But Harry felt like he has, had been called to expand the gospel. And he had contacts because of the years he had spent uh, on Mr. Nixon's staff, and he had contacts all around the world. As a matter of fact, Harry Dent and a man named Billy Plowden were the two men who went out to California after Nixon, Mr. Nixon lost the California governor race and persuaded uh, Mr. Nixon to allow his name to be submitted to become president of the United States. And Harry Dent saw uh, the success of that effort, and, and yet later on he saw the deterioration of a great man uh, who uh, fell into habits and into customs and to a spirit uh, that would not becoming the president of the United States. And so Harry left, uh, and, and Harry began to focus on expanding the gospel around the world. And he, he had been to these countries, the Eastern European countries, and saw the possibilities, and, and so he began to make trips to Romania uh, and uh, Hungary. <clears throat> and uh, in that, he, he began to contact Christians and found out that there was an underground church in Eastern Europe that was powerful beyond imagination. But they were stymied because the government had passed laws saying, unless you have a building with a cross on it, you cannot gather for worship. And so Harry was uh, going around to the churches that he knew in South Carolina and asking for money uh, to build a church over in Romania. And when he got to our little church, uh, we asked him, and he, Harry, how much money do you need to build a church over in Romania? And he said, we've got to have $10,000, and I'm going to visit 10 churches today and go around to the different churches in the low country and ask them if they will underwrite that uh, object, that pro project to, to build a church over in Romania where people can have their church and be recognized. He left that little church in Sardinia with $10,000 in his pocket. That was more money than they had been, put, had been putting together in two or three months. But when they heard the open door that was there in Eastern Europe, and when they saw the excitement of this man and heard his appeal, 
uh, please help me to build the church. Then those farmers began to shell out. And before he left there that day, he had $10,000 that he took over to Romania and helped build the church that was there. And certainly it can be a turning point in any church when you get excited about evangelization, whether it is in Pale City or whether it is in the state of Alabama, whether it is in the whole world itself. And we have these marching orders, enlarge the place of your tent. And that means to grow your heart, uh, to begin to realize. And may I just interject this thought without any intention of criticism. But when you pray, pray not only for the flock here, but pray for the expansion of the gospel. Pray for the people down in Haiti and, and Jamaica and places like that. Pray for the people in the Bahamas because there is a work beginning there in those places. Pray for the people in Cuba. There is a powerful explosion of evangelism going on in Cuba right now. And let the Lord hear your prayers and bless your congregation, yes, indeed, in praying for each other individually and, and according to need. But let him also hear you from your heart praying for the expansion of the gospel throughout the world, for the people over in the Mideast who are suffering for the gospel's sake. As we mentioned last night, when a person is baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, over in the Mideast, in most of the countries there, he's putting or she's putting her life on the line. And usually they are persecuted and oftentimes they are killed upon their baptism. And so pray for the suffering church and pray even more fervently for the sleeping church in this country that is not, doesn't seem to be aware of that and doesn't seem to be concerned about the spread of the gospel. Enlarge the place of your tent. Because if you are, if you're indifferent uh, toward the, the cause of the spread of the gospel, you're indifferent toward God because he's not indifferent toward the people of this world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And you might uh, think to yourself, well, we're just a little small town country church. No, you're not. You're part of the body of Christ in the world. Enlarge the place of your tent. Get excited about sharing the gospel. Get excited about teaching your children so early in life they will come to a saving knowledge of Christ not later on in life. And of course, we praise God when, when people in their later years do become Christian. But how much better for a little child to come to saving faith so they'll have a lifetime to serve Jesus Christ and not just a few of the twilight years. And so pray that God will enlarge your heart and pray that God will put within this congregation a burning desire to spread the gospel all around us, all around the world. We've seen some wonderful things over in our section of the country. We started this thing called Release Time Ministries. You heard me talk about it the other night, in which parents can sign their children out of school 
during the school hours and take them off campus where they can study the Bible and hear the gospel. And we've got three or four ladies in that community that know how to teach the Bible and know how to evangelize the children. And we've seen marvelous things, hundreds and hundreds of children and young people coming to know Christ and dozens of their parents coming to know Christ. And the racial barriers are down at the learning center. And uh, there, are, there is a sense of unity there among the believers in Manning, South Carolina, one of the last strongholds of rigid segregation. Now God has broken through that barrier because they believe that word is enlarge the place of your tent, get into the public schools, get them out, tell them the story of salvation. But there is a secret to enlarging the place of your tent. Listen to this, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. The image used is taken from the life of the nomad tent dwellers and even modern day campers could understand the physics of this. The larger the tent, the longer the ropes have to be and the deeper the stakes have to be driven into the earth. But this is not a manual on camping, it's a manual on growing the church. And so for the church to truly grow and sustain that growth, there must be internal growth in the spirit and uh, coming closer and closer to the Lord who came into the world to seek and save that which was lost. Every and each one of the members of this church should be a student, a serious student of the word of God because that's how you strengthen your stakes. You must drive your thinking into the scriptures, into the love of Christ Jesus and realize that this is what it's all about, is to worship God, but beyond that is to take the message of salvation to seek and save those who are lost. But the, the biblical knowledge of most congregations in our time is woefully, woefully lacking. And there, there's a reluctance. There seems to be in the Christian world, especially in this country, a seeking for the latest fad or to make, help people feel good about themselves. Uh, and certainly there is a, a need for that, uh, but the church has taken it and run with it. As a matter of fact, I was criticized uh, the other Sunday uh, by one of my well-meaning deacons uh, because I had prayed during the pastoral prayer for those who are outside uh, of, of the uh, church and those who have left the church uh, and and those who have are living lifestyles that are obviously in disobedience to the word of God and what I pray oh God make them so miserable that they will have neither rest nor peace until they repent of their sins and come to a saving knowledge of Christ and make us so miserable for them that we will reach out to them not only with the love of, of Christ, but with, with the word of God that, that corrects the erring. So most church members' knowledge of the word is woefully inadequate. And what the challenge is in driving the stakes deep into the word of God is that you will stop just spending two minutes a day reading one verse of scripture. 
but you will take the time to get into the Word. You say, I just don't have that kind of time. Turn off the television, turn off the computer, and you'll be surprised how much time you have to study the Word of God. But it, this, this is, it's become so crucial, uh, and the lack is so obvious and that we need to, to really take seriously that the, the study of the Word of God must go beyond a few verses in five minutes a day. It should require hours of your time. I have, well, I passed on to a son of mine years ago uh, an old prayer book that came over from Scotland, a family devotional book. And in that family devotional book was a lengthy reading of Scripture an exposition of scripture, a hymn to be sung, and this was twice a day. And this was the pattern of the church of the people in Scotland and in this country at one time. The families gathered for prayer at least once a day and sometimes twice a day. They sang together, they prayed together, uh, they uh, studied God's word together, led by the Father the spiritual leader appointed God's spiritual leader and in cases where the spiritual leader was not exercising himself in following the Lord, then the mother took over. But there was a time when Bible reading was at the heart of every Christian family. And the word was read, the word was studied, and prayer became uh, the, almost the second language. And this is the command because prayer and power go together. And certainly the spiritual health of any church or any family can be measured by the intensity and the extent of the prayer life of that congregation. But what do we find in most congregations when there's a prayer meeting without a dinner to go with it? You might get a half a dozen people there. Uh, and but but the, but the the excitement that should grow out of the possibilities we're going to gather and come before God Almighty who has promised to do great and marvelous things through us that we know not and that we're going to beseech the throne of grace we're going to pray Bill or Mary or whoever it is into the kingdom by God's grace we're going to dedicate ourselves to seeing this church become everything that Jesus Christ wants it to become. And when those, when those things happen, then churches that are lukewarm become red hot. And, and they begin to seek the lost. And they begin to, to enjoy the fellowship because the third ingredient in this is not just Bible study and prayer, but it is the interaction of the members of the congregation together. When, when there is hunger, that need is met. When there is sickness, the elders of the church and the whole church gathers around and prays for them. When there is need, that's abundantly met. And when there is sorrow, there is comfort to be had in knowing not only do we have fellowship here on earth with the body of Christ, but we have fellowship with those who have gone on, who are in the presence of God right now and a mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. And so there must be that interaction, that, uh, that uh, coming together in love and fellowship and prayer for each other. And so, again, this 
inward growth must express itself in reaching the lost. The worship services, as your worship service uh, obviously is, are God-centered and exalting Christ. The, the gracious offer of salvation is presented over and over again. Listen, anyone miss this? And I, I'll never forget the advice that I heard years ago when I was up in the mountains of East Tennessee. And I went to this godly pastor and I said, tell me, what do I need to do? Uh, and he said, just, just this, my son. You make sure that every sermon you preach has enough of the gospel in it to shut the gates of hell and open the door to heaven because it's the last sermon somebody will ever hear. And it may be your last sermon you will ever preach. So go before God and ask him to present his saving gospel through every sermon you preach. And certainly that is good advice. And the salvation that we experience through the blood of Christ is something that, that needs to be emphasized over and over again. Opportunities must be given. Challenges must be laid upon the hearts of the people. And yes, the prayer of the pastor and the elders of the church must be, Oh God, for those who are indifferent, make them so miserable that they will turn to Christ and find in him the answer to their need. Does all of this sound too idealistic? It shouldn't, for the Bible makes it very clear that this is God's norm. Go through the epistles to the churches in the New Testament, and you will find this same thing, that the encouragement to enlarge the place of your tent, strengthen your stakes, and lengthen your court. We have a story to tell to the nations, but we don't want to talk about it. We're commanded to rescue the perishing, but we're too indifferent. And I challenge you, plead with you as one who, who loves you because you have surrounded our family with loving kindness and goodness, rededicate yourself to the church because if you're dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to rededicate yourself to his body, the church, and let the power of the Holy Spirit flow through you for you shall expand, the Lord said, to the right hand and to the left and your descendants will inherit the nation's and all of your children will be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. So there are our marching orders from the king. Enlarge the place of your tent. Enlarge your heart. Enlarge your efforts. Strengthen your stakes. Lengthen your cord. Break out on every hand and see what God will do with one little congregation that loves and honors him. Will you let me pray for you before I go? Oh, Father, I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for the beginning of great things. Thank you for uh, the loving, uh, faithful pastor that you have given them, the alert elders who, who want the very best for this church and the members of this church who, who long to see the fulfillment of your will in everything that we do. And Father, will you honor the dedication of this congregation. May they break out on every hand. May they truly lengthen their ropes and strengthen, and strengthen their stakes. And I pray, Lord, that this church will become the talk of this whole area, not for its glory, but for the glory and honor of the Savior. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.